please be seated. The scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 43, verse 14 through 21, and Luke 2, verses 25 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I sent to Babylon, and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans, in the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. And then from Luke 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you for your word, and we ask, Lord, that as we attend to it, that you would attend to us, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have for us now. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit in proportion to our need in this moment, and we pray this all in your name, amen. <coughs> Uh, when the sun came up Wednesday morning, it was a regular day. But by the time the sun had set in San Bernardino, California, it was a different day. Not only for that community, but for communities like ours and as that word travels, certainly um, a different day in various parts of the world. Because as the horrific tragedy unfolded that day at the Inland Regional Center where 14 killed, 17 wounded, we're left wondering kind of what to say and what to do. Some presidential candidates were asked later that day, and in their comments, they used the phrases that are all quite familiar. 
Our thoughts and prayers are with the victims and their families. And that wasn't the first time you've heard those words. It won't be the last, perhaps. But those words set off an editorial board in New York City. And as the New York Daily News prepared their headlines for the following day, they came up with this. In response to the presidential candidates' platitudes in their mind, the headline on Thursday read, God isn't fixing this. There's anger behind those words. There's also a lot of assumptions behind those words. And there's something that shouts and cries out that like they've given voice to that something must be done. And God isn't the answer. That's understanding, we can understand their anger and, they're, and they're pointing to some solutions that may not be the right solutions, and they may not be your solutions, but we do understand their anguish, right? We understand anguish, that kind of anguish, and God forbid the day that we don't feel anguish over that sort of tragedy. One, uh, one man that used to write for that paper, who no longer does, commented on that headline. And he was asking the question, he was asked the question, was that over the top? Here was his response. Sometimes a sledgehammer of the visceral sort can seem more appropriate than a cerebral scalpel. Now that's a wordsmith. <laughs> for one. But what a picture. Sometimes a sledgehammer of the visceral sort like that, God isn't fixing this, is more appropriate than a cerebral scalpel. This whole dialogue that that headline and the presidential candidate's comments sparked raises all kinds of questions that we won't answer today. But when we peel back on that little exchange, there's some questions that are real. And that is, in a broken world with broken lives and this kind of horrific tragedy, what is the interplay between the sovereign work of God and the responsibility of men and women to address real issues like that. It may say a lot, the headlines may say a lot and capture a thread that runs through, uh, largely through our culture, where people have stopped looking to God. And maybe that's what's the takeaway from that headline, that there are many that have stopped looking to God in this, or don't expect that God is actively involved in the world that we live in. Well, we're not going to unravel that that dilemma today, but I, I went this direction in preparation because that kind of that kind of question, does God fix things? Does God remember? 
is the very situation that these two texts that you heard read and you followed along speak into. The kind of questions, does God fix things? Does God fix this? Was the question on the hearts and the lips of the people of Israel when Isaiah wrote chapter 43. You know what was going on then? Um, He was addressing a people. In fact, the clue is right there in that first verse read where he mentions Babylon. That's where they are. They've been hauled away. They've been in Babylon. There's been a political oppressor that, that owns the day, that calls the shots, that makes the rules, and, and has strapped them in. And they're asking the question, does God fix this? When we come to Luke 2, when that scene unfolds, it's following 400 years of silence. Where in the past, God spoke through his prophets, and there's been this silence now for, for four centuries. Can you think that far? 400 years of silence. When people like Simeon, who know the story, they've even read Isaiah, but they know the story, and they're asking the question, does God fix this? Does God fix this? That's the situation. One, in Babylon, where there's no perceived activity of God, and then in Jerusalem, where there's no received word from God for 400 years. That's the dilemma. That's the dilemma, but here's the principle. It's in the darkness. It's it's when the darkness is darkest that we look hardest for light. I've learned to kind of find my way through our house with enough little lights on at certain strategic locations. But when the power's out, it's a different story. And I'm looking for anything that can be, that can light the path and show the way. That's what it was for Israel and Babylon. That's what it was for the people of God in Jerusalem as that Luke passage unfolds. And it may be, friends, what it's like to be a member of a family in San Bernardino, California today. That in the darkness, is there hope? Is there light? And then we get this story where God comes into the darkness and he says, hey, look at me. I am doing a new thing. I'm doing a new thing, and it includes you. It doesn't stop there. But for your sake, it starts there. That's what we see when we unpack this, uh, this whole episode. <clears throat> Babylon rules the day, as I've said, and then there's this story that comes through the prophet. And when he tells this story, in fact, some of you may have even heard some words in that Isaiah passage that sounded a little familiar. Did you hear these? He says, I am the one who makes a way in the sea. I'm the one who makes a path in the mighty waters. I'm doing a new thing. 
I'm your redeemer. I'm your creator. I'm your king. That's my revealed nature, but here's my active engagement and involvement in this world. I am making a new way. I'm making a way through the sea, a path in the waters. There's a way in the wilderness and there's rivers in the desert. What does that sound like? That's the story that Israel has been telling one another for generations. (laughs) That great deliverance that we call the Exodus, that Exodus calls the Exodus, (laughs) That picture of God coming to a people that were in in slavery in Egypt and and the breakout story of being delivered through the waters. In case you missed the image, he he doesn't let you. He says, I'm the one who brings forth chariot and horse and army and warrior. They lie down and can't rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. That water picture of of water quenching an army. Red Sea, deliverance. We know that story, says Israel. And what God says through the prophet Isaiah is, you remember that? I'm not exhausted. I haven't finished. In fact, I'm about to put in place a greater exodus. That's what Isaiah's pointing to. He says, I'm doing something new. And he uses present tense. It's not just remember the old story. In fact, he says, don't think about the former things. He says, look at the new things I'm doing. I am making a way. I am making a path. I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. That when when there is no clear path forward, God creates one. That's what he's saying. When there's no clear path forward, God creates one. When there's no natural relief or refreshment, God provides it. That's what he says. Away in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. I will prepare a way. I will create a way. There is a way. There is no situation that you find yourself in today, friend, where there's not a way out. There's not a a deliverance that is yours because this promise, this this hearkening back to the story in Exodus, this present moment in the life of Israel in Babylon is simply foreshadowing that greatest Exodus. In Luke 9, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's this event that's occurred and then there's a conversation around the event. That's where the heavens opened and, and there's this voice saying, this is my son, listen to him. And that as these Old Testament figures have been called together, I can't explain that one, <laughs> but here it is, this little dialogue where, where these Old Testament figures are in dialogue with Jesus on the mount. We hear them say, we hear it described like this by Lou. There were two men talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure that would be accomplished in Jerusalem, that was about to be accomplished. You see, at the end of his three-year public ministry, Jesus cap, cap, capitalizes this reality, the capstone event is about to occur 
on a cross in Jerusalem, which is his departure. But the word Luke uses is exodus. That exodus story that we read about and has been captured on film, some good, some not. This story in Isaiah, which harkens back but points forward, says I'm doing something new and I'm doing something greater, is pointing to the exodus, this Isaiah passage, is pointing to a cross in Jerusalem where Jesus, through his exodus, his departure, creates and provides your departure, your exodus, your breaking through. The big idea around this whole thing is release. That's the notion that, that Isaiah is talking about. There's a release from captivity. And you are gathered in the midst today of people who know what it is to be captured, who know what it is because it's our story of being captured by something that has a grip, a death hold at times, a stranglehold on our very lives. It might be substance abuse. It might be pornography. It might be bitterness, resentfulness. There is something, friends, that is lurking not far away from the control center of your life that has that kind of grip. And you've been there. Some of you, some of us, are there. And Jesus says, I'm doing something new. I've come as your deliverer, as your exodus. I am the way out. You are not in a room with no windows. Your heart that God made is being remade. And I say that because of what follows. This is what it looks like that this new thing that God is doing has, has two facets to it. One is a transformed world. You get little echoes of this and some of that imagery and, and what he writes about here where, where we can sense that there's something new going on where, where wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. There's this, there's this zoo in, in view. But there's another zoo that that Isaiah has written about previously. That is a background to this. It's Isaiah 11. You'll recognize these words. Here's what the transformed world looks like as it meets the journeying people of God. Isaiah 11. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear, the cow and the bear will graze together. Their young shall lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I can't wrap my mind around that 
but I can wrap my heart around it. We long for that. We want a world where a bear and a cow would graze together. Because we want a world where there's no more tragedies like have unfolded in California. We long for that. We long for a world that's made right. And it includes, in some fascinating way, when God says, I'm doing a new thing, when Jesus said, I'm making all things new, he's talking about the zoo life. <laughs> he's talking about community life. He's talking about your heart. I'm making all things new. Jesus has, those are his banner headlines. I'm making all things new, Revelation 21. He picks up this notion of, that Isaiah has pointed us to in Isaiah 43. And, and Jesus read Isaiah 43 and said, that's my mission. That's why I come as an infant into this world. To make all things new. It includes a transformed world, but it really includes, and here's where it lands for us most immediately, it's transformed lives. It's not just the animals that learn to coexist, but it's changing the very core of who you are. Actually, it's returning the core of who you are to what it was designed to be. Without the darkness, without the bondage, without the brokenness and selfishness and bitterness and resentment. And I can almost wrap my mind around that. But boy, can I wrap my heart around that as well. God's, when I say it's the transformed lives that he's creating, it's from verse 21 where he says, these are the people I formed for myself that they might declare my praise. The God who made this world, the creator of Israel, he says, I created you out of nothing is the word there. I created you just like I created the world out of nothing. I'm your king. I'm your holy one. I'm your creator. And I'm yours. And I've created you and I'm forming you for myself, God says, that they might declare my praise. This is where the potter, I'm not very good with pottery, but I know one. There's a potter who perfects what he has planned before the beginning of time. That's what God is doing. That's what he's doing in a broken world. He is forming you, forming us into the people that he made us to be and planned us to be before the beginning of the time and before the fall occurred and, and shattered that design. And so in redemption, with a redeemer, we have someone who is remaking all things new as they were intended, as they were designed. And that's why we step into this together. And why God calls us to worship him on a Sunday morning, we, we come with our brokenness. We come with our doubts, with our questions, with our pride. And when, we, when he lifts our eyes to see the beauty of Christ, those things 
fade away. They don't go away. They fade away. And God takes root and takes hold and begins to shape your heart, to shape your life, and to form it in a, into a direction that it was intended so that you, like these people in Israel in Babylon, Israelites in Babylon, could say that we are here to declare God's praise. You have felt, you felt the pressure of the craftsman's hands on your life. You may be feeling it now, today, this week. You have felt the pressure of the potter's hands. But what you need to know is those are hands of grace, mercy, and love, and design, and purpose, and intent. And he knows what he's doing. He's, he's weaning us from the things of this world that we read about in 1 John earlier. The things that we use as substitutes for the living God. For the things that pull us away. He's weaning us from those. He's breaking the tie. He's shattering the grip that those things have on us. And that shattering occurs when we see the beauty of Christ. And not until. We can do a lot of things to amend our ways, to resolve to be different. Some of you will resolve in a few weeks to do something different. That's a good thing. But it's not my resolution or my abilities that changes my heart unless it's to resolve to put my place put myself in the pathway of grace. And that's what happens on a Sunday morning right here. That's what happens when we come to this table. We put ourselves in a pathway of grace that that transformation would occur. We have an example. We have an example right here from Luke 2. It's Simeon. It's this man. We don't know how old he is. We, we tend to think he's old because he says, okay, now I can die. That sounds like words from an older man and not a young one. But we don't know his age. What we do know about Simeon, described in verse 25 of Luke 2, is that he was righteous. And what that word most often means in that context when it's describing a human as righteous, it's describing someone who behaved well toward men, toward his community. It had to do with his reputation. He, he behaved well. There was something about his life that was favorable with others. That's what the word righteous in that context uh, most often means. We know that he was devout. And oftentimes that word simply means he was careful about his religious duties. He had a Godward aspect to his life. And he was careful about it. So he related well to others. He was relating well to God. But what's striking about Simeon and unique about Simeon here is the rest of the description, that he was waiting for something. He was waiting, as the words that we read, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. You know that book, Isaiah? kind of falls in two halves. The first book is full of warning. But the second half of that book is dominated 
by consolation. One after another. In fact, one person writing about it said that this book of Isaiah is, the second half of Isaiah is a rushing torrent of oracles of redemption. And that's what had captured Simeon's imagination. He was waiting for the consolation that Isaiah had talked about that had taken shape in front of him. And he said, yes, that's what I want. When you look up the word consolation in the dictionary, it will tell you that a consolation is something that helps a person feel less disappointment and less sadness. That's the consolation prize, by the way. That's the consolation game when, you don't, when you're not playing for the championship. You feel less sad if you finish third. <laughs> but when the Bible talks about the word consolation, that doesn't even come close. Because it's not less sad and less disappointment. It's the fullness of our hope and joy and expectation. That's what we find that, that Simeon was waiting for and that you are longing for. You're longing for the consolation of Israel whether you know it or not. Because your life longs for truth and beauty and goodness and no more San Bernardinos. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel and as that word continues to get used, it was used as code language essentially for Messiah. You see, that's the consolation of Israel. He is the consolation of Israel. Jesus Christ, who came into this world to make all things new, including my heart and yours. We, we know, too, that the other feature of Simeon's life was that, he, that the Holy Spirit was upon him. We read that. That seems to indicate it was on him continually, not just as in the Old Testament the, the Holy Spirit would show up on occasion for certain events, but the Holy Spirit was upon him. It seems to be continually. And here's what happened. Because the Holy Spirit was on him, the Holy Spirit did for Simeon, what the Holy Spirit does for you, for us. He lifts the veil that, as Paul put it, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we might see what Simeon saw. As he held the eight-day-old baby in his arms, did you read what he said? Now I can die. Because you promised me I wouldn't die until I had seen the salvation of the Lord. And that's a gift of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. It's a work of the Spirit to open our eyes to see, to see what we didn't see before. There was a particular moment in my life, it was about age 17, when I began to see things that I hadn't seen before. They had been there, but I hadn't seen them or recognized it. I had actually heard the same message. 
But there's a moment, and you may not know when that moment is, but you will know today if through the eyes of faith, you, like Simeon, have seen the salvation of the Lord, the one who loves you, the one who knows you, the one who values you, the one who delivers you through his exodus. And you will know today is the day of salvation. That's the work of the Spirit to do that. Let me conclude with these words. In my kind of thinking through this little dialogue between presidential candidates and New York Daily News headline editorial thinking, there's some things, some takeaways. The New York Daily editors, it seems, are right with their anguish. Maybe wrong with their conclusions or solutions, but certainly wrong in their pronouncement that God isn't fixing this. Because no one but God can fix this. John Piper was writing about this Luke passage and he wrote this and I've been thinking about this for several days. God prepares a person to receive Christ by stirring up a longing for consolation and redemption that can only come from Christ. Did you hear that? God prepares a person to receive Christ. He has Simeon in mind, but I've got me in mind. God prepares a person to receive Christ by stirring up a longing for consolation and redemption that can only come from Christ. God fixes things, and only God fixes things. The presidential candidates were on the right track. We do pray. We pray for the families of those victims and for those survivors, and we pray against the darkness of this world and the forces that are real. We pray against that. We do pray because we have a God who did not exhaust himself with one exodus, but he is actively engaged in this world, and so we do pray. But I've been thinking, too, about this observer and his comments about the sledgehammer. Sometimes a sledgehammer is what's needed and not that's visceral and not just a thoughtful scalpel, cerebral scalpel, he called it. You know, he says it's one or the other. I think Isaiah and Simeon would say it's both. In Jeremiah, we read these words, declares the Lord, is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? There, there are... There are things that only the Word of God can shatter, that need to be shattered. Things in my life and yours and in this world. 
Things need to be shattered. But the writer of Hebrews says that same word that Jeremiah calls a hammer is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, or maybe we could say scalpel, that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what the Word of God does. It will shatter and it will expose. And we need both. And that's what we find in the eight-day-old boy that grew up to die on a cross, to be raised, who speaks today through his word. He shatters things that need to be shattered. And he exposes the intentions of my heart and yours and, the, and those that would perpetrate the kind of evil that we tremble about. But in the midst of that, God promises, and this is the big takeaway from this morning, that God promises that people who bear his name will be released from exile through a new exodus accomplished by Christ on a cross And in accomplishing his exodus, it becomes yours. But also your hope. Hope in a world that doesn't know where to find hope. A world that is sometimes darker than we will acknowledge. But a world that belongs to God. It is his. And so are you being made new from the inside out for his purposes. And as Isaiah put it, to be a people formed by him who would declare his praise. And that's what we do when we come to this table. We declare our need. We declare his praise. Pray with me. Father, would you meet us? Would you do that work in us that we cannot do? Would you do this work in a dark and broken world that we don't know how to do? But we know that you are good, that you are king, that you are holy, that you are a redeemer, and that, that you are doing something new in Christ that stretches our imagination and captures it, that captures our imagination that you are doing through Christ what this world longs for. And so as those that have been called by you, being formed by you, would you send us into this your world for your purposes with news that you are doing something new. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.